Welcome to HashiCast, the self-proclaimed number one podcast about the world of DevOps practices, tools, and practitioners. So welcome to another episode of HashiCast. This one's a bit special for us here at HashiCorp. This week, it is a privilege and honor to welcome Arman Datkar, who is one of our two co-founders and also the CTO of HashiCorp. So some of you might not know this, but HashiCorp's first office was in Armand's living room where Mitchell and Armand spent most of the time designing and coding many of the products that you know and love. While the company has grown and changed a great deal in the last five years, you will still see Armand replying to messages and questions on mailing list, GitHub issues, and Twitter. Uh, he has an immense passion for open source, and you see that when you look at HashiCorp as a company, we are an open source company. Most importantly, he has the privilege of managing both Nick and I and set directions for our team. So welcome, Arman. I know I just gave you a brief introduction, so please tell us more about yourself. The floor is all yours. I guess I'll make a, I'll make a very minor correction, which is the first two HashiCorp offices were actually in my living room. I ended up changing apartments, you know, like a year in or something, my lease was over. Uh, and so the, the first and second <laughs> HashiCorp offices were in the living room. <laughs> so today we're going to take a journey through your experiences over the years and all the secrets are going to come out, Arman. So let's start where it all began. Tell us when was the very first time you used a computer and what pulled you into the world of writing and building software? Oh, you want to go way back. Okay. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess, you know, for me, what kind of was the spark was my dad actually was a was an electrical engineer so he used to work at cadence design which for folks more familiar with the semiconductor space they basically make tools that sort of semiconductor companies buy to design and do chip layout uh, and so when you're actually you know whether you're intel or sort of a smaller chip company you, you use cadence as tools to kind of design microchips and so kind of growing up, I'd always kind of like pester my dad about like, oh, what are you working on? Because I'd see him like, you know, doing cool things on his laptop. Um, and I'd kind of see what he was working on. And, you know, he started showing me a little bit of, I think, uh, Visual Basic at the time. Um, and sort of poking around with, you know, very simple type things in Visual Basic. Uh, and that was kind of where I started getting super excited by it. And <clears throat> I remember they bought me this sort of like the Visual Basic .NET sort of like box set with the full... You know, 12 CDs required to install the IDE and the giant 600-page booklet of like, you know, here's how to go from you, you know, learning Visual Basic and making a tic-tac-toe app and so on and so forth. And so I remember I just sort of like, you know, run home to like go through the book and like implement the next example and sort of like learn Visual Basic. And that for me was kind of the uh, the starting inspiration of it. So you, you started off with Visual Basic and you continued. That, that's... <laughs> It gets worse, though. It really goes downhill from there. From Visual Basic, I went to PHP. <laughs> so, you know, it, it only goes off, really. <laughs> and I, I remember having passionate arguments with Mitchell, um, you know, ex so sure, so confident that PHP was the one language to rule them all. Um, and Mitchell just give me this look like, yeah, okay, sure. <laughs> PHP was pretty amazing at the time. I, I kind of started off working heavily with Visual Basic and PHP. And maybe, maybe it's the desire to move on that drives uh, 
drives you to keep moving to you know get away from PHP and Visual Basic. You um you, you studied computer science at the University of Washington. Now, so like I'm not I'm geographically inept when it comes to America. So that's you, Seattle, right? Yes, yeah, that's Seattle area. So was was this kind of you had the bug bitten? You were bitten by the bug with Visual Basic. And this just was natural progression? Did your kind of like family sort of encourage you to do this? Or was this something that you were just like, this is what I want to do. I'm I'm 100% set. Yeah, I mean, I think it was one of these things where once I'd, uh, once I'd had the, you know, bitten by the bug, so to speak, then it was kind of, um, you know, it kind of just, it, it became clear to me that's what I wanted to do. I spent, a, you know, a lot of time, you know, with Visual Basic, and then very quickly moved on to PHP. And then I started actually just doing like, you know, contracting work for, for different companies. For a while, I was interning at like, an, you know, an options training firm writing like formulas for calculating options pricing in Excel, um, thanks to all my VB background. And so, you know, once I figured out that people would pay me to do this thing that I actually liked, I was like, oh, this is the coolest thing ever. Like, this is the best job. Like, you'll pay me money to do this? Uh, and so I think it was it was super obvious for me when I wanted to go to school uh, that it, it had to be for computer science. It wasn't like, I'll go there and I'll figure out. It was like, you know, I, I knew going in, it was like, I'm going to do uh, computer science. And I actually did a University of Washington had a, an interesting program called direct admission, which was at the time you applied, if you knew what your major was, um, you could also joint apply for a competitive major. Right, so some of the majors you could just show up and declare that you know you're, you're in that major, but some of them you had to apply. And so, you know, during the application, I applied directly to computer science because, like, I, I want to be in that program. <laughs> That's awesome. How does that? How did that kind of influence you, though? So, the, the things that you learned, I I enjoyed going to to, to college, and and I really enjoyed working on the like the theory and, and getting stuck into the books. Do you think that's kind of shaped the way that you work today at all? Or did it, did it help you with the internships? Oh, I'd say without a doubt. I mean, you know, I think even today it's sort of, um, you know, I think one of the uh, funny things about HashiCorp is that in some sense, you know, the whole, maybe, maybe we'll come to it. And it's kind of the, uh, you know, the, the story of how me and Mitchell ended up working together, but I actually super loved academia to the point that when I first moved to San Francisco, it was actually to do a PhD program at Berkeley. It was not actually to work in industry. Um, because when I first started at the university, every winter we would do a research fair um, where all the different sort of you know, professors would sort of talk about what they're doing research on and kind of recruit undergrads in to do research with them. And I ended up finding this project called the Seattle Project. Terrible name. Good luck with that SEO. You'll never find it on Google. Um, <laughs> where what they were trying to build was this general purpose scientific cloud, right? So if you're familiar at all with like folding at home or SETI at home, it was like, you know, you donate 10, 20% of your computing cycles to this like altruistic scientific cloud and like help solve, you know, cancer by folding proteins. And so I thought this was super cool. And the Seattle project was building a generalized version. So instead of being, you know, you build folding just for proteins and then you build SETI just for scanning, you know, airwaves, you could build a general purpose scientific compute cloud and then submit different workloads to it. And that's really what the Seattle project was. And so I thought this was, you know, an awesome, awesome project. I ended up joining it uh, and I spent almost three years on that research project, almost my entire time at university um, and ended up publishing papers while I was on that group. And so I really just enjoyed the, the academic side of computer science a lot. 
Um, and so that was sort of you know, part of what I thought along the way was, you know, maybe I'll, I'll stick on the academic track. So for sure, I think that's, you know, that, that, that definitely changes the way I think about some of the problems and the way we approach things that, you know, now at HashiCorp, just because, you know, I, I, I guess I'm, you know, for better or worse, have a bit of an academic inclination. So, and, and the internships that you did, did, did they, were they kind of during your college course or after, just before HashiCorp? Where did they kind of fit in and, and um, what did you get out of those in, to complement your, your sort of academic knowledge? Yeah, so I did a few internships. So over the summer, sort of all three years, I did an, uh, a series of internships and sort of small company to a large company. And, I, you know, I think it was kind of a, it was a mix, right? Because on one side, you know, I did have an opportunity to intern at AWS and, uh, you know, that was, you know, now looking back, it's kind of crazy. At the time, AWS was about 250 people uh, and the whole thing fit on one floor. Um, and now it's now it's just such a different, <laughs> such a different beast. Cities. Yeah. Cities. And I remember when I showed up, it was like, oh, the I met with, the, you know, the VP at the time because he was like, oh, yeah, I meet all the new interns who start. And you're like, I don't I don't think the VP has time to meet all the new interns who start anymore. <laughs> Uh, so that was super cool because it was kind of this behind the scenes view of, you know, the, the places I'd interned before or where I'd sort of done programming for, you know, for pay, the scale was, you know, there was a few servers and, you know, when you go to Amazon, it's just, it opened my eyes to just a different scale of computing, right? And this is, you know, we're now talking 2000, what was this, 2008, 2009, uh, I was there and I remember, you know, on the project I was at, we were rolling out some new service and, you know, we did back of the napkin calculations on, you know, how many servers we would need. And we we're like, oh man, we need like 50 servers for this thing. And I'm like, this is like the most infrastructure I'd ever touched at the time. And so I go to my, my manager and I'm like, okay, well, how do I, how do I get the servers? He's like, okay, go talk to that PM. He, he allocates the internal resources for AWS groups. Uh, and so I go talk to the PM and I'm like, you know, I, I need a lot of servers for, for this project I'm spinning up. And he's like, you know, this is a bad season for us. This is like, you know, peak capacity. Customers are using a lot of the instances. Like, you know, I have, you know, we definitely have some to spare if this is urgent, but, you know, like how many do you need? And he was like really worried because I, I primed him being like, I need a lot of servers. And I'm like, oh, I need like 50. And he just, you can see the stress all of a sudden leave him. He's like, oh, I thought you were going to ask for like 10,000. He's like, oh, 50 servers, just go for it. Don't even talk to me. And I was like, and I just had this moment where I was like, what? 10,000? Like, what are you, what application are you running that needs 10,000 servers? And I think, you know, it's those kind of little moments of being kind of behind the, behind the curtain, if you will, where it's just like, it gives you a sense for the like breathtaking scale of these clouds. So are, are we talking about like virtual machines here? Or are we talking about actual physical servers? Um, those were all VMs because we were provisioning on AWS itself. So that would have been like 50 VMs. But yeah, it was just like, <laughs> it was just like 50 VMs. Don't even talk to me. It's like, go away. <laughs> and back in 2008 as well, I can't even begin to think of the pain it would go through to set up and provision all of that sort of stuff. That there must have been some interesting lessons there as well that you've you've taken later on in life. You know, you know, at that time though, when I was in when I was interning there, I was I was sort of uh, not that close to the provisioning side in terms of you know the racking and stacking and, and getting the actually physical hardware in place. 
Uh, I was luckily more of a downstream consumer of EC2. But yeah, I mean, so I guess, you know, the way I might think about it is it's like, you know, the perspectives were kind of all over the place, right? On one side, you know, I think what I learned in working at some of the more financial institutions was thinking about the application is really there to provide value to the end business. And I think that was a really valuable lesson for me was we're not, you're not writing software for the sake of software, right? You're writing it because it's all about the app. Yeah. There's some business value you're trying to deliver to the end customer or the analyst who's trying to price options or the trader who's trying to execute something. The application is just there in service of that. And you know, the developer and the end user really didn't care. Did I do it in VB? Did I do it in PHP? Did I invent my own language? Right? Like none of that really mattered to them. They're like, did it deliver the options pricing to me? And was it accurate? Like that was what mattered. Right. And so I think that was a really valuable lesson. And then on the other hand, I think, you know, working at Amazon gave me a sense for, you know, the things you do when you're managing five servers is, you know, it doesn't matter, right? Every, you know, it's a more ad hoc, the scale is lower, right? It's, you can, there's a lot of things you can do and get away with it. Uh, but when you're at sort of, you know, Amazon scale, or, you know, there's a lot of things before Amazon scale, but when you're really operating at any serious scale, you need to start thinking about the management less like an art and more like a science, right? Because so the cattle versus yeah, you can't thing. scale art to thousands and tens of thousands of machines, right? You can scale it to five, ten, fifty. But we all do it every day with batch one-liners. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that works, right? For a lot of you know the the applications, and I think it's like you know a lot of the stuff at the you know the finance space that I was at, it was that right. You wrote like little bash scripts to sort of munge things together, and that's fine. You delivered value. Um, in doing that. So there was really no reason to over-engineer it. So I think that was sort of an interesting thing for me. I think the flip side of what I learned in and in being in industry was, you know, often I felt very frustrated uh, as a developer by the sort of red tape in doing anything. Um, you know, it was just like, oh, you want to do that? File a ticket. Oh, you want to do this? Like, click this button to this portal and then wait eight weeks, right? Um, and I found that very, very frustrating, uh, especially sort of early in my career when it's like I wanted to try things and learn things and experiment and kind of like move quickly. Um, and, and it was just sort of, you know, it felt like we were being held back from really adding value to the business because of all of this red tape around things. And, you know, to, to a large extent, that, that's actually what motivated me to, to want to stay in academia uh, and actually go on to get a PhD was I felt like, I would learn more and grow more um, sort of in the academic path with kind of the total creative freedom to explore what I wanted as opposed to sort of being bogged down by red tape. And I think the, the sort of gap, what I didn't really know was that there's kind of a middle option, right? It was like, it wasn't just big tech or, you know, you know, big finance company, right? With there's, you know, any large company has a lot of sort of, you know, bureaucratic overhead and sort of academia, which is sort of like the ivory tower, right? Um, it's like the, there was this middle ground, which was startups, and I had not experienced that um, prior to moving to San Francisco. And so I think, you know, that was sort of an important shift for me to realize, like, there is actually this in-between. So you had all of that experience, all of that academic experience. You, you were, like, fairly sure that you wanted to stay in academia, but that didn't happen. Now, can you, can you talk to us about how that didn't happen? I mean, did you all, like, you and Mitchell obviously started HashiCorp, but did you know Mitchell for a long time sort of prior to 
starting HashiCore or was it kind of you bumped into him one day, had a chat and all of a sudden you kind of changed your mind on your future and, and wanted to take a different direction? Yeah, so it's a good question. So me and Mitchell actually met on that same research project that I talked about earlier. So the, the scientific compute cloud, you know, one of the early assignments I had on that cloud, on that project was a horrible, horrible project, which was to try and port the entire sandbox to run on Windows Mobile 5. I don't know if you ever experienced a Windows Mobile 5 device. It ran on those like Palm Trio yes. horrible things. It had like a... Windows CE... Yeah, had like a 130 megahertz processor, like 24 megs of RAM, practically a toaster, right, by comparison to like any real computing device. And the sandbox that we needed to run minimum, the hello world was like, you know, it needed 16 megs of RAM. So you're trying to load a sandbox that has, that needs 16 megs of RAM on a device with 24 megs of RAM. (laughs) And so my assignment was to port that environment to Windows CE and get it to work. And as you might imagine, this was a horrible, horrible experience. <laughs> I think our test suite took something like 16 hours to run on the device. <laughs> and the, the differences between Windows C.NET and .NET itself were pretty radical. I mean, there was quite a lot missing, even between the sort of the different cuts of the software, right? Oh, I failed to mention that project was in Python. <laughs> It was even worse. (laughs) So CPython barely even functioned on the device. So this was an absolutely horrible project. And so I threatened to quit the project if the PI made me keep working on it after a quarter. And he's like, okay, okay, okay. I got this other undergrad, Mitchell. Uh, He doesn't know how bad it is yet. So your job is to train him to do it. And then you don't have to do it anymore. And I'm like, this poor, poor individual. But sure, as long as it's not me. And so I met him. I was like, hey, nice to meet you. Here's this really horrible assignment. Like, here's how you do it. Uh, you know, best of luck. Let me know if you need any help. And that's how we met was basically I was sort of handing it, handing over the baton, if you will. The poison chalice. Exactly. <laughs> By the way, this is still happening till now. So like, yeah, this is exactly what, what happens now at HashiCorp. <laughs> exactly. I'm like, Mitchell, this thing's terrible. Have fun with it. <laughs> um, And so we ended up meeting then, and that was sort of like freshman year of college. We honestly sort of, you know, lost track of each other a little bit. University of Washington is is a massive school. It's like 65,000 people. So, you know, it was a, because he ended up sort of leaving the project after a little bit. You know, I wonder why. (laughs) He had such a fun assignment. Um, uh, And so we sort of lost track of each other for a little while. And then, you know, it was actually sort of, I think in my third year, where I had this revelation where I was like, I really don't want to end up working in sort of a large, you know, company. Um, And so I was like, you know, thinking about what are my other alternatives and, you know, thinking about academia. And I was like, well, you know, I've heard about startups, you know, but I don't really know anything about them. And so I was like, you know, you do what you do when you're a naive college kid. You send an email to a few friends being like, hey, want to do a startup? And so, you know, I still kept the email to this day I have it. I sent Mitchell an email at like, 11 p.m. I haven't seen him for like a year and a half. And I'm like, hey, you seem to like be cool and, you know, know how computers work. Want to do a startup? (laughs) So that reminds me of a conversation that I had with Seth earlier on uh, last year about the HashiCore as a startup. 
And DevOps weren't your first product, were you? You had a you had a real killer idea for your your first startup. Would you like to talk to us about that so that other people don't maybe make the same mistake? Oh, so many mistakes for people to avoid. Um, you know, and this is this is way before HashiCorp. So this is you know, I ended up emailing five people, and so the group ended up collectively ended up being named Amped uh, using the first initials of uh, all of our names. So the you know the A was Armand and the M was Mitchell. Uh, and so it was kind of a group of five of us sort of working on a few different ideas. And I think, you know, we went through a few things. One of them was, you know, we tried to do a kind of a group me location-based chat app uh, that we called Proximity. And the challenge was, you know, we built this iPhone app, but this predates the iPhone having GPS. So location on iPhone was based on like triangulating with cell towers. So the accuracy was like plus minus 10 miles. It was like... It was horrifying. It was like, you're somewhere in the Seattle area. So it's like not a particularly useful mechanism when you're like, who's within four blocks of me and wants to grab lunch? So we just sort of ran into like the limitations of the hardware on that one. Um, And then we, you know, we tried doing like a mobile commerce sort of Stripe-like application or it's more like Square, I'm sorry. Uh, And then ended up building like a textbook reselling website. So we kind of stumbled our way through a few different things. They weren't terrible ideas. I mean, it, it's not hot dog or not. <laughs> no, actually, the textbook reselling uh, thing actually did make money. Uh, that was actually uh, ended up being a good idea. We'd scrape the the university bookstores of something like six hundred different universities and populate a catalog of all the textbooks per by class, and then you'd go in and basically say, "I'm in, you know, whatever calculus, you know, one." And we would do a search across, you know, Amazon and, you know, Barnes and Noble and all of the different resellers of textbooks uh, and show you, hey, you, the best price would be, you know, Barnes and Noble or Amazon or, you know, eBay. And then if you click through and bought it, we got an affiliate fee from it. Uh, and so that was actually, it wasn't a terrible idea. It actually did make a few thousand dollars a quarter, which as college students, you know, we were like, you know, we were rolling in cash. <laughs> so after all that, you decided to start an open source company. Why start an open source company? Yeah, so HashiCorp actually didn't kind of come logically next. Um, what happened after that was when we graduated, you know, I moved down uh, to, to go to Cal and Mitchell moved down and joined this mobile ad network. And then Mitchell basically pestered me, you know, a thousand times a day uh, to interview at the mobile ad network. And the deal I made is, you know, if I interview, you'll leave me alone. <laughs> but I make no promises about accepting the position. <laughs> Uh, and so, you know, as these things go, ultimately interviewed, really loved the team and, and ended up joining. Um, and so me and Mitchell spent about two and a half years at the ad network and he ultimately ended up running operations. I ran sort of application architecture. And so, you know, I think that experience in some sense, I think what planted a bit of the seed because what we then felt like we were, we were very much in the operator role, right? Like we were operating infrastructure on behalf of, you know, the ad network. And what we found is that we were building our own provisioning tools, our own service discovery tools, our own packaging stuff. And, you know, we kept asking ourselves, like, why are we building this stuff? Like, why is an ad network building cloud provisioning tooling? Like, this just doesn't seem like the relevant type of things for us to work on. Like, this is not our expertise. Our expertise should be running an ad network. Um, And so... You know, I think that was a valuable experience in terms of like, what are the things you care about as an operator in terms of, you know, having confidence in the tool and, you know, day one and day two operations and, 
you know, what is it actually like when you own the infrastructure and you're responsible for the SLAs? That's a valuable experience. But I think then the flip side of it was like, it was very obvious to us. There's a gap in the market, right? Which is like, why are we building this stuff? Clearly, we shouldn't be doing that, right? Um, and so I think that ultimately is what was the inspiration was, you know, when we started HashiCorp was, okay, how do we solve this problem, you know, once and for all, so that when we want to go back and build our, you know, our book selling website or our chat app, that we're focusing on that and not focusing on building the provisioning tooling, because that is sort of an irrelevant part of building a, a you know, a chat application. It's, a, it's kind of a detail. It's really interesting. So trial by fire, which kind of solving your own problem. Right. Yeah. And I, in some sense, it was like, we were like, you know what, let's try it. It's, you know, two Ikea desks in my living room. Worst case scenario, we fail and we go work somewhere else, right? So has building HashiCorp and creating all the products we've created met the expectations that you had set really early on? Yeah, I mean, in some sense, it was hard not to meet the expectation because the expectation was we'd fail in six months. So <laughs> the bar we set for ourselves was very low. <laughs> it was like, we'll try it uh, and then, you know, we'll get, you know, we'll fail and move on. So the bar was very, very low. So luckily we were able to, to meet it. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, in some sense, I think uh, so far HashiCorp has kind of exceeded my, my wildest expectations in terms of, you know, what we thought we would be able to achieve, right? I thought, you know, if I think we would have been satisfied and proud if we built a set of tooling that we thought credibly solve the problem in a way that we would want to use personally, right? And I think that in some sense was the, the bar we wanted to hit was like, is this a tool I would have used as an operator at the ad network? Would it have my solve my problem? And would it make me want to gouge my eyes out like some of the other stuff we had to use before, right? And if the answer to that was, yeah, this thing is great, I would use it. That was the bar we were really shooting for. And then, you know, can we convince other people that it's a good idea, that it works, that they should use it? Um, that was an open question. But in some sense, it was like, you know, the more important one was like, could we build it for ourselves first? So let's talk about the tools that HashiCorp has created. So it started off with Vagrant and then HashiCorp became the Vagrant company. Some people even tagged HashiCorp as an IDE company. Also created tools like Surf that confused a lot of people. So take us through that transition from one tool to the other. Yeah, I mean, so when we started the company, uh, you know, it's important to remember that Vagrant actually predates HashiCorp by a, by a few years. Um, and so Mitchell had started Vagrant in college and had sort of grown it from, you know, a user base of one himself to by the time the company even started, Vagrant had something like 500,000 users. And so I think the natural reaction when people saw HashiCorp get, you know, founded around and Vagrant is sort of the, the only project was like, oh, okay, HashiCorp is sort of a developer tooling focused company and weirdly people put vagrant in an ide category i never really understood it but they thought about us as dev tool right and you know what we knew the sort of the secret master plan all along was you know it's not a dev tools company it, that's a part of it but what we really wanted to focus on was that entire application delivery life cycle right so from you know inception which is where vagrant sits all the way through to you know packaging, deploying, monitoring, and running in production. And so we knew in some sense what we had to do was forge a path from development into the data center, right? And so that is sort of what guided the ordering of the tool. It was like, yes, we started with Vagrant, so we're at the sort of logical inception of the app. And so the next logical piece was, okay, well, you have to package it. And so Packer was the next piece. 
And I think the market's view of that was like, oh, well, if you're using Vagrant, you need a tool that makes Vagrant boxes. So it makes sense that you have Packer. And I think that was sort of how they you know, made this narrative make sense. And then when Surf came out, that was our first tool that ran in the data center. And I think that's what totally messed with people because they're like, okay, we got why you'd use Packer with Vagrant, but the Surf thing, like, what is that all about? Uh, and it just you know, it threw people off. And I think for us, what it was, is like, we're forging a trail into the data center, right? And I think console then was when it became really clear to people. It was like, oh, this is actually, there's an arc here, right? Like Vagrant is for development. Packer is that sort of middle ground as you're transitioning from sort of pure dev test into sort of staging prod. And then surf console, our production, right? And I think that's when people started to sort of see this full narrative arc. And I think it's only become increasingly clear with, with kind of every tool from there. So one of the things that really interests me is came out when, in a talk that Mitchell gave internally, uh, I think it was last week or the week before, and he was talking about RFCs. Now, the thing that surprised me the most about that talk on RFCs was how much emphasis that was put on why rather than on how, which for me as a, a software developer, that's the kind of the thing I get my kicks from. But is this process ever something that you could kind of codify, you know, that the process of idea creation and product design, do you think you would ever get to a point when you would write a book like Ed Catmull's Creativity Inc. about, about this? Because it, it seems to be a pretty successful process. It's an interesting question. I guess I've never thought about the, you know, is there, hmm, can you bring sort of a science to it, right? Uh, is almost the question, right? Can you... Yeah, exactly. Is it is it something, is there a workflow to it or is it a real sort of more of an abstract artistic approach? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it, I think calling it maybe is sort of, I think it's both, right? And I think what I hesitate with is, you know, I don't want it to sound like it's some like magical process, right? That it's like only, the, 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 there's something somehow exclusive about, about the process and it, you know. Actually cause Big Mac sauce. <laughs> it's because I think anyone can do it. And I think there is a, there is a generalization to it. I mean, I think ultimately what it comes down to is to build a good product. Actually, maybe, maybe I'll rephrase to build a great product. You have to have domain expertise in the problem you're solving, right? You have to be immersed in it. You have to have had the problem. You have to have experienced it. You have to have probably used all the other tools uh, that try and solve the problem to really deeply understand and intuit what is the core fundamental challenge I'm trying to solve here? What are the different approaches to solving it, right? By playing with different tools, each tool might have a slightly different approach. And so you'll understand, okay, this tool solves it this way. This has some trade-offs. This tool does it this other way. This has some other set of trade-offs. And having then been the operator, having then deeply experienced the pain yourself, you'll have a better appreciation of what are the trade-offs you would want to make in a tool, right? Where you're like, ah, this tool makes this set of trade-offs, but you know, that's a terrible set of trade-offs if I have more than 100 servers and this one makes this other set of trade-offs and they, you know, that's, that's terrible for a different reason. And so I think having then experienced that, you sort of, you can sort of connect the dots and saying, okay, here's the good from this, the good from that, the good from this. And you sort of bring the pieces together sort of in, in your mind's eye uh, in terms of what this product would look like. So it has to be, I'm guessing it, it, it's, it has to be more of a team sport then you need all of this opinion, all of this information, all of this knowledge, and you've got to bring it together to kind of tease out all of the important facets of that. Totally. And if you look at the kind of early days of, you know, when it was just kind of like, you know, me and Mitchell 
uh, and even you know when Jack joined us a little later on, there was this strong interplay between us on the on the products in terms of each of us sort of thought about the and made a different set of mental trade-offs, right? Because each of us having experienced it cared about a different set of things. And what you'd often see is, you know, Mitchell was much more focused on the usability and the user experience and, you know, what, how do we craft that as an experience for the user um, where, you know, I would tend to maybe get a little bit more, you know, bogged down in, in some of the implementation details and, and sort of, you know, the academic grounding of it a little bit more and sort of overly fuss about sort of the architecture uh, and, and, and so I think it was sort of like the fusion of these things together is really what helped kind of make it a great tool. But whilst it was fusion, did, it must have caused some friction as well, because you've, you've got to have compromise in a situation like that. You, you can't have potentially perfect UX without maybe compromising on technical implementation. Oh, you know what I mean? It, it's, there has to be give and take throughout the entire process. To, how, do you, how do you manage that? And, and I suppose, how does HashiCorp even today sort of manage that compromise and, and get that balance correct? Yeah, that's a really, it's a super good question. And I think, I think it actually comes back to something that we've tried to sort of bring to the culture of HashiCorp, which is you have to set your ego aside, right? Is when you're focused on building a product, everyone is going to have a slightly different opinion. Everyone's going to have a different set of experiences and trade-offs they want to see in it. And so if you approach this collaboration as you know, this is my idea and a compromise of my idea is, you know, somehow, uh, you know, in affront to me, right? Or, you know, it says something about me and not something about the product, then it creates this incredible amount of tension and friction because you've created it. A, you've, you've now created a situation where you're, in some sense, the product has become a proxy war between the individuals, <laughs> Versus, I think, if you're able to get get into that, say, you know what, we're really trying to do is solve a user problem and create something great. And it's really not about us as individuals. And there is going to be this natural interplay. And yeah, some of our ideas will be good. And some of it, I'm just going to throw something out there. And it's a terrible idea. And Mitchell will tell me it's a terrible idea. But he's not telling me I'm a terrible person. And those are two separate things. And I think even as the company has scaled, I think that's important is like, we have to create we have to set that sort of ego aside. And I think that's a lot of the part of something about like an RFC is really how do we focus on crafting the story around what is the problem we're trying to solve? What are the different possible approaches? What are the trade-offs we're exploring here? And really open that up for exploration uh, by other people who are reviewing it, by our collaborators in terms of sort of not saying, this is my idea, this is the RFC, and you either can approve or reject it, but saying, no, here's sort of, here's an inception of an idea and let's sort of work together to mold it into something, something better. But I think to kind of minimize that friction, I think that friction only exists if you bring your ego. If you remove your ego, then you're just talking about, hey, you know, what do we care more about? Do we care about you know, making Vault perfectly secure at the cost of its user experience being abjectly terrible? Or you know, do we find some middle ground where, yeah, we'll sacrifice some amount of security, but we're going to make it so much more usable that we think that's a worthwhile trade-off. And I think then you're talking about this different level where it's not, you know, over my dead body will we compromise over this type of a thing. And I think that's really interesting as, a, as an approach to take. And it, and it certainly creates a, a pleasant working environment, I think. But back onto the kind of uh, the, 
HashiCorp itself. And if we look forward in time, where do you see the most sort of challenging areas that, that HashiCorp as a company and is, is going to sort of, what is it going to have to deal with? What is it going to be market influence? Is it going to be internal driven by growth? You know, where do you kind of see the, the, the problem areas? Yeah, I mean, I guess there's the uh, the foreseeable problems and the unforeseeable ones, right? Um, you know, I think uh, the the foreseeable ones are definitely sort of the growth driven ones, right? Is I think we've done a great job so far, kind of building building a, a very specific culture and sort of training everyone who comes in. But can we continue doing that as the company grows and making sure that you know we keep that same sort of egoless, humble, sort of focused on the customer and the problem, you know, attitude as we grow, I think that's a, that's a hard problem, right? For, for every company. I think that's a challenge. Um, you know, I think scaling all of that kind of creative stuff tends to be hard too, right? Because naturally what happens is more process sets in, right? Just as hey, there's customers who have SLAs and you have so much more communication overhead because there's so many more people. And so you need more structured communication channels. Things have to be less informal. Um, and so I think as we bring some of that stuff in, how do we continue to make sure we create room for innovation and creativity? And I think that's why you know, it was important to us in the early days to plant HashiCorp Research uh, as sort of a, a group where we can sort of shield it a bit from some of the evolving process and make sure that innovation still takes place. So I think those are those are very foreseeable problems. I think unforeseeable are things like, you know, market forces or dramatic changes in the way we, you know, in technology or something like that. I think the but the market forces. I mean, as a as as an individual, you, you I know you spend a lot of time sort of still reading and researching. Is that something that you you've still got the passion to do? You know, I mean, I I I'm not going to answer the question for you, but you know, how do you, how do you keep the drive and the passion? Yeah. I mean, the passion's certainly still there. The time maybe a bit less so these days. Um, I don't know. I mean, in some sense, it's just, it's always been, it's always just been interesting to me, right? It's just, there's, it's always, the research as a side has always helped satisfy an intellectual curiosity, right? Of can this be done differently? Can this be done better? Right. Are there, are there alternate ways of solving this problem? Um, and so I think that part of it has always been interesting to me is sort of that, how do we explore the sort of the frontier of what we know, the frontier of sort of new designs and new approaches, right? And push the boundaries of things. Uh, so that's just, it's just always been interesting to me. And so I think having the research group too also is a, is really great because it's like, I get to spend a few hours a week with a research group just doing pure pie in the sky type work that is, you know, you know in some sense, very not grounded to very specific customer problems. And I, um, if the listeners have have not checked out episode zero, which was with the HashiCorp research team, you should really check that out because um, I can understand why working with John and Robbie is actually a whole bunch of fun. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> so switching gears a little bit. So let's talk about your role at HashiCorp. I remember, I think this was 2016, uh, HashiConf in, in Napa. And me and you went for like a five minute walk. And I asked you this question, like, how has your role changed? in the past couple of years, and you said you're transitioning into a managerial role. So what, what is your day-to-day -day like now? Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, 
Yeah, it's interesting. I, the way I describe it is my role changes, I think, every quarter. So every, every quarter, I have to spend the first few weeks figuring out what my job is. And then I get a few weeks to actually do it before it changes again. Um, and part of that, I think, is just driven by the growth, right? It's like as the company gets bigger, it's like, you know, we, you know, we get more specialized or we sort of, you know, the, the priority changes and things like that. So, so my focus changes. Um, at this point, you know, I think what's really nice is we have, we have two CTOs, both me and Mitchell. Um, and we hired, I think when we talked, that had been uh, before we hired Dave, our, our CEO, and so I think my job was a little more sort of CEO at that time than it was CTO. Um, so now we have this sort of interesting balance, I think, where, you know, Dave has taken over a lot of the sort of operational stuff that I used to do in terms of the day-to-day running of the company, right? Um, and so now, you know, my, you know, part of my function is to kind of work with Dave and the rest of the, the executive team in terms of you know, running the company, but now there's folks that are doing it day to day. So I spend a lot less time on that. Uh, so I get to spend more time with, you know, the different product leads, talking about kind of architecture of the projects and specific features. I get to spend more time, you know, in the field. So I spend quite a bit of my time sort of with customers, just talking about, you know, either existing customers about how they're using the tools or how, you know, what problems they're facing with it, and as well as new customers who are sort of looking at the tools and evaluating, you know, do they solve their problems. Uh, and then, you know, internally spend time with, you know, both you and Nick uh, in terms of, you know, developer advocacy and then Robbie and uh, JC in terms of uh, what's happening over in research land. So that's kind of how I split my time. A lot of it is, uh, you know, effectively meetings, right, but kind of spanning different parts of the organization. But the meetings, I mean, I know you spend a lot of time with our customers as well, and, and you've just come back from a, a European to a that information must be so valuable though. I mean, to to be able to keep in touch with the customers, to hear their problems and to kind of, you know, feel their pain and, and to be able to solve it as well. But that must be very a very interesting and very, very important part of the role. Totally. I think it's absolutely like critical to stay grounded, right? Because I think no one will give you the more unvarnished truth of the customer, right? <laughs> Uh, and I think that's super, super important is to still stay close to them because they are the operator, right? Like they are in some sense, the one that has to use the tool, operate the tool, deal with the sort of, you know, they own their SLA. And so they acutely feel, did we make the right trade-offs? Where are the sharp edges? Um, and so, yeah, that, that information flow is, is super valuable. So one of the things that intrigued me about HashiCorp, and this is even before I joined HashiCorp was this design-first approach of designing the, the CLI interactions and the outputs first, and then eventually writing the first line of code. Why is this idea so critical when it comes to building tools? Yeah, I mean, I think it, it almost relates it back to Nick's question, which is it puts you back in the role of the operator, right? I think when you think about the problem through the lens of you know, the internal architecture, you're wearing the vendor hat. Uh, and when you think about the problem through the lens of, okay, I'm literally typing commands on the command line to try and do this, you're, you're putting on the customer hat, right? And you're saying, what is the customer's experience of, of the tool and the problem and not what's our experience as the vendor you know, building the tool? And so I think that's what's important about it is sort of, it forces you to empathize with the end user uh, when you take that sort of design-oriented view. Yeah, and that's super, super important to us is to, you know, 
it goes back to what's the standard that we're trying to set for ourselves, which is like, would I want to use this thing and would I gouge my own eyes out? <laughs> so if you were, so one last question for you, Armin, and this is a, not a, not a serious question and not a tech question, but if you were going to be, if you would describe yourself as a book and any book throughout the, the age of the printing press or before, which book would you be and why? Ooh, which book would I be? Um, I haven't thought about it through the lens of which book I would be, but I guess maybe I'll, maybe I'll answer my favorite book. Um, it was a book I read about two years ago now. Um, it's Virginia Woolf's To the Lighthouse. And it's one of these books that, you know, it's like there's books you read for fun and you never think about it again and you vaguely remember the plot. And then there's the books that sort of have a profound impact uh, on the way you think and live your life. And I think that was one of those books for me um, where to this day I have passages from the book still, you know, written in notes on my phone that I sort of like reread, um, you know, probably on a weekly basis. Um, and it just left that much of an impression on me. Uh, and so I think, you know, I don't know if I'd be that book, but it's certainly my favorite book. That's amazing. What about you, Mishra? Mm, I like to go with Digital Fortress by Dan Brown. I read it in high school. It completely changed the way I looked at computers and got me really excited about them. That's a great book. What about you, Nick? For me, it's easy. My book would be Rox's PHP 3, which is circa, <laughs> circa 2000, because if it wasn't for that book, I don't think I would have got through the year 2000. And, and on that note, I guess we should say thank you so much, Armand. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for hosting. You've been listening to HashiCast with your hosts, Nick and Mishra. Today's guest has been Armand Dakar from HashiCorp. Be sure to tune in next time.